Good morning, church. Good morning to each one of you here, to those of you watching us online here in Pretoria, in South Africa, and other parts of the world. Great to have you with us. We are a large family, and it is good to be together. Uh, it's good to see the numbers increasing now that we can accommodate a bit more people as well. And please, guys, keep on. If you can come to church, come to church. There's nothing like experiencing this right here. It's great online. It's even greater right here. Amen, church? Amen. Praise God. And, and we need what we've been hearing today. We need it. Uh, I'm, we get, we're starting a new series today. It's called Upside Down. Upside Down. And, uh, you know, when you look at that picture, we, which one is upside down? We, we think it's the top part that is upside, but you never know. Maybe the bottom part is the upside. They, they say that our brains invert everything. And then we kind of get used to seeing it. So I, I don't know. Uh, but the fact is, it's, it's in the book of Acts, the Christians were accused of turning the world upside down. And we need some faith to do that. The fact is, throughout 2,000 years, in one way or the other, Christians have been upsetting the, the status quo. And so we, we're going to take some, some time in this next couple of weeks to look at what made the gospel of Jesus turn the world upside down, or is it right side up? You know, and uh, we're going to do it under three headings, threat, impact, and disturbance. And today is part one called threat. Amen? Threat. Our text is uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 17. And as we go, I will give you more background as to what is happening over there. But um, I really want to encourage you over these next couple of weeks, take some time and read uh, Acts chapter 16 and, and 17, also maybe the book of 1 Thessalonians, the first two chapters, because you see, Paul was on a missionary journey together with Silas and Timothy, and, and he kind of went along and he, and he picked up Timothy along the way, brought him along. Luke was there as well, keeping record of everything, and that's why he wrote the book of Acts. He was together with Paul, and he wrote down the story of what they were doing. And they experienced some amazing things and some terrible things and some wonderful things, uh, just like our Christian lives, isn't it? We've got some wonderful things and some terrible things that we have to face sometimes, but here we are. And as these believers, as they went along the, the, the cities, people were coming to Christ and their lives were being changed. <laughs> and then they got a reputation of turning the world upside down. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas had been preaching the gospel in the, in the city of Thessalonica. They're in Greece, in the upper part of Greece. And uh, many believed in the gospel. In fact, the Bible says that uh, some Jews were persuaded. Remember that in, in these cities, the Jews had, had been dispersed in a lot of, uh, all around the world, and there were many Jews in Thessalonica. And of course, they were talking about God, and, and some Greeks had come to believe in God as well, and they came, they were attending the synagogues with the Jews. Of course, there were all the other pagan religions going on over there. And so the Bible says that in Thessalonica, as, as Paul and Silas, as they preached the gospel, uh, many, some Jews were persuaded. And a great multitude of devout Greeks, Greeks which had come to believe in the God of Israel, now they heard Paul and, and many of them started believing in, uh, in Jesus. And not a few of the leading women. 
there were a number of, of you know, women in society. There were leaders in society. There were influential women back in that day. And they came to believe in the gospel as well. And they joined Paul and Silas. And so they were having revival in Thessalonica. People were coming to Jesus. And then the following happened. Acts chapter 17 Let's read verses 5 to 6. As I say, if you go in and you read chapter 16, you're going to get more of the background and 17 as well. But this is what happened in, uh, in verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, that was the guy, the Jews that were in the synagogue, they heard Paul and Silas preaching, but they did not believe. As you know, you preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus. Some believe and some don't. And so some Jews believe, but some don't. But now this is what happened. The guys that did not believe, they didn't simply reject the gospel and carry on in their old ways. No. The Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, huh? became envious. They, they took some of the evil men from the marketplace. It's amazing. It, uh, some things don't change. City centers, marketplaces. There's always a couple of shady characters hanging around there. No matter where you go in the world. Okay? It's amazing. And, and already back then in Thessalonica, there were a couple of shady characters hanging around the market. Sick, uh, you know, just looking around if they could you know, pick a pocket or two, you know? <laughs> and so they took some of these shady characters from the marketplace and gathering a mob, they set all the city, wow, in an uproar. They caused chaos, they caused turmoil, and attacked the house of Jason, because Paul and Silas were staying in the house of Jason, who was a disciple. And then, and sought to bring them out to the people, the Jason and Paul and Silas, you know, to the people. Verse 6, but when they did not, did not find them, Paul and Silas were not in the house when the mob got there, they were somewhere else. And so... They dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Whoa! Can you believe it? Just because they were preaching the gospel and people were getting born again, people's lives were being changed, a bunch of these jealous Jews incited a riot, a mob in the city. They spread fear. They spread nonsense. Everybody got upset. And they came to the rulers of the city. And this is the accusation they make. Those who have turned the world upside down are here too. Wow, imagine having a reputation of turning the world upside down. Now, obviously in every accusation there is an amount of what? Exaggeration. Okay, because obviously the whole world hadn't been turned upside down, but it was true that lives were being changed. Huh? And guess what? 2,000 years later, lives are still being changed. I hope you are, that you are watching today, you are here today, because in some way or other, your life has been changed, has been touched by Jesus. Maybe your life hasn't been changed, but you have been spared a lot of nonsense because you were born, perhaps, into a Christian home. You grew up by Christian values, and so you did not have to experience a lot of the junk in the world. And you are here today because the gospel changed your life or 
preserved your life. Hello? Huh? I remember when I was young, back in the 70s, there was this whole Jesus movement. And, you know, the big scene there was drugs and, and sex and all that kind of stuff. Well, not much has changed, does it? But anyway, and then there was this kind of thrust in, in bringing people to Jesus. And I'd go to these youth meetings and, and these guys would come up. Oh, you know, I was into drugs and into this. And then I met Jesus and I got changed. The one goes, ah, oh, I was into prostitution and so on. Then I got met Jesus, met Jesus and I got changed. And one day I was sitting in a meeting hearing all these testimonies. I'm saying, wow, you know what? I don't have a testimony. Because I, I somehow never did these things. And then the Lord spoke to me. He said, Valdir, look carefully at your life. You had the opportunity, because I did. I, I was attracted to a lot of that junk. I had friends that were there that opened the door for me. I had invitations to be part of, you know, like rock groups and getting to all the stuff of the day. But the word of God in me stopped me. Even though because of the crowd that I was around with, I wanted to try. I wonder what it feels like to try some drugs. I wonder what it feels like to experiment with this. I wanted to because what I was seeing, it was the fashion. I was also watching how messed up the people got once they did that. How their lives got destroyed. But of course, I, I was sure that if I... They experienced, experimented with it, I would be okay. And when the opportunity came for me to do it, the Word of God came to my mind. The Word of God came to my mind. Everything that I've been learning since a child in Sunday school in church came up as a shield. And I said, no, I can't do this. And I didn't do it. And I was spared. And I was sitting in church that day and listening to these testimonies. The Lord said, your testimony is that you were spared. Because of the word of God in you, you did not have to go through all this junk and all this hurt and all this pain to eventually find a solution, to eventually find salvation. You were spared. And I said, thank you, Jesus. That is my testimony. My testimony is I did not have to go through all that. He saved me from all that. That was my testimony. Doesn't make me any better than the guys who did go. Because remember, in my heart, I desired that kind of nonsense. So I'm just as guilty. It was just the mercy of God. And the fruit of my training, my upbringing that my parents got into me, dragging me to church you know, as a kid. And that stuff got into me. And at the right time, when I was on the edge of precipice, the word of God pulled me back. And so guess what? The word of God turned my world upside down or right side up. And it's still doing it. Because remember, temptation doesn't stop once you go past your teens. How many of you know that? I'm, I'm past 45. And I still have to deal with temptation. And the word of God still saves me today. It still turns my world right side up. Because if I had to give into my flesh, even today, even at my age, I could do some real stupid things. Well, I hope this is blessing you because you know, it's, a, it's an encouragement. Just to make, let's, be, let's be real. As we've been singing, we need Jesus. We are, we are broken, guys. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that you're perfect. You're perfect in His sight, hallelujah. 
But as long as we are in this planet, we are broken. We, have, we are surrounded by sin. We have the tendency to fall. If you are standing, beware lest you fall, says the Bible. Hmm? And so these guys had the reputation of turning the world upside down. Obviously, news had arrived in Thessalonica of what had happened in other cities where Paul and Silas had been in and how people had been saved, how people in the synagogues, they lost members because they became followers of this new religion, Jesus, and the followers of Jesus. And so these guys had heard about all this and they felt threatened. And so today in in this first part of our series, we'll try to understand why they felt the gospel was a threat to them. Why it was a threat to them. And why they reckoned it turned their world upside down. We'll also consider if and how (laughs) you and I could be a threat to the world today and turn somebody's world or our world upside down today. Hmm? What do we sing? Lord, give me faith. (laughs) We're going to need some faith if you're going to follow these dudes and what they were doing in the first century. Now, in the first century, the gospel was something new. It was something unheard of. It was seen as a new religion by some, as a new philosophy by others, and as a relationship with Jesus and a new way of life by those who followed Christ. In fact, amongst the disciples, they used to say, we are the people of the way, the Jesus way. The name of Christians wasn't given, isn't the name we gave ourselves. It was the people that watched the Christians that called them Christians. These guys, they behave like Christ. So let's call them Christians, you know. And so it wasn't a name that we chose for ourselves. It was given to us by the unbelievers, okay. And anyway, it was a new thing. And as the gospel was preached and it spread, it became a threat to many who did not believe. The truth is that the gospel still remains a threat today to the ideologies and the philosophies of the world. It's amazing. Just about every religion in the world is tolerated, but Christianity is persecuted. Why? You don't hear of Oh, the Muslims are being persecuted in this nation. Oh, the Hindus are being persecuted. Yes, obviously there are always some infightings in between these different aspects of religion, but you don't find persecution, whereas Christianity is being persecuted. In fact, just this morning, post arrived, and I haven't heard the whole thing yet, but over the past ten, decade, the past 10 years, persecution to the church has increased. It was bad 10 years ago. Over the last 10 years, it has increased. And, and the world is talking about human rights and let's save the planet and, and let's make it a greener place. And nobody cares about the thousands being persecuted, millions being persecuted only because of their faith, being killed, being ostracized, losing opportunities, being pushed away from society. In many societies, it's a shame. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of shame. If you, if you become a, a Christian, that means you're rejecting your family's religion. In some cases, it's a national religion. And so it becomes a shame to the family, and you get kicked out. If you decide to follow Jesus, your parents will not talk to you. Your brothers and sisters will reject you. That's if you're lucky. Because if you're not, they're actually going to come after you to kill you. Hallelujah. Who wants to follow Jesus now? 
And we're going to hear, we're going to read as you go on, that that was the situation of the first century Christians. They were also persecuted. They were risking their necks by following Jesus. When Peter stood out on that second chapter of Acts and spoke to the people and said, man, you killed Jesus. He's talking to Jews and to Romans. Both groups had it in for the Christians. The Jews, because they thought these Christians are worshiping another God now. And the Romans, because they're preaching a new king, a new Lord. Man, Caesar is Lord. There is only one king, one Lord, one ruler, Caesar. Anyone above that is, is impossible. It's blasphemy. It's tyranny. It's terrorism. You get killed for doing that. Today we come and we sing, Hallelujah, Jesus is Lord. And we don't realize the power of what we are singing, the significance, the meaning of what we are saying. And how much people have had to suffer because of that name to give us the ability today to be able to speak freely of this in some countries. But the problem is that not only is Christianity a persecuted religion in the world today still, even in Christian nations or Christianized nations, you see an increasing resistance to Christian values, Christian teachings, Christian morals, Christian law and rules. And you watch, it's beginning to happen in South Africa as well. It's happening very openly in the United States and, and in Europe, but it's coming to here as well. Where when you mention some Christian values, Christian principles, man, you become ostracized. You are discriminating now. You see, it's nothing new. All right? Why? Why is a lifestyle and belief which teaches peaceful living? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Paul was teaching his people to obey the authorities, to live peacefully, huh? to live a quiet life. So why are they being persecuted? Why is a lifestyle and belief of peacefulness and of obedience to authorities a, 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 a lifestyle which is based on love? Why is it resisted? Why does he turn the world upside down when embraced and followed? You see, because the gospel confronts the sin in the individual. You cannot preach the gospel without confronting our sin. I cannot read the Bible and follow the Lord without realizing that I need a savior. Because there is sin in my life. There are tendencies, there are thoughts, there are things in me which need saving, need changing. Hmm? You see, the gospel is divisive by nature. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was drawing a line. He was saying, guys, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. You want to come to the Father? Here, here it is. I am the way. When you do that, you knock out all other religions, all other gods, all other ways of going into eternity. And so people will tell you, well, why do you guys think you're so special? Why, why is Jesus so special? Ah, you got your faith, I've got mine. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the gospel indicates. So you see, the gospel is divisive by nature. The gospel presents a standard, a plumb line, declaring what is sin and what is not. Nobody likes to be told that they are wrong in any way. 
I still get uncomfortable when God corrects me. And I've been corrected plenty in my life. The longer you live, the longer you get corrected. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Huh? Jesus himself said that he brought a sword. He brought division. Did you know that? Have you ever noticed that in your Bible? You see, the things we, we, we get so used to reading the Bible or to certain passages, we don't kind of let them resonate with us. We don't stop to say, what? I mean, I thought you came to seek and save the lost. I thought you came to bring peace. But listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 10, 34. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Man, we've just celebrated Christmas. Remember the angels? Peace on earth. <laughs> Jesus came. He's the prince of peace. And now Jesus himself says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Man, this gets worse. <laughs> not only did he come, didn't come to bring peace, but now he comes to bring a sword. Guys, what are we doing following this Jesus? Hey, ever stop to consider that? His words. But you see, listen carefully. He said, I did not come to bring peace on earth. You see, the Jews thought that Messiah would be a conquering king who would deliver them from Rome. In the first century, that was the Jews' main concern. We are Jews. We don't want Rome to rule us. And they were expecting this Messiah to come and get rid of Rome. <laughs> and all their other enemies. And also, they didn't like the notion of Jesus, the king, suffering and dying for sinners. Because that would imply that they, the Jews, were sinners. But they knew very well that they were not sinners. The Gentiles were the sinners. We are the Jews. We are God's people. We are not sinners. So the king must come. The Messiah must come. Get rid of Rome and rid of everybody else so that we can be a free nation. Hallelujah. As the wonderful people that we are. And Jesus says, ah, 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 ah. You got it wrong, fellas. You got it wrong, fellas. I did not come to bring that kind of peace that you're expecting. Hmm? And so they didn't like this uncomfortable teachings of Jesus. <clears throat> the gospel proclaims Jesus both as Savior and Lord. In other words, King over all. All right? Savior of sinners and Lord over our lives. And in this verse, Jesus made it clear that he did not bring the peace that the Jews wanted in their land. They would have to make a decision. Follow Jesus or reject him. And by rejecting Jesus, they would attract judgment upon themselves, which is unfortunately what they did. They rejected Jesus. And a couple of years later, AD 70, the Romans invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, dispersed the Jews, and they were a disbanded nation. Only not too long ago, in 1948, did Israel become a nation again. And they suffered the consequence. The sword came upon them. 
because they did not follow the teachings of Jesus. They did not embrace him as Savior and Lord. Jesus made it clear that choosing him could mean loss and separation to some people. When the gospel is clearly proclaimed, it draws a line in the sand. People cannot be neutral. And in the series, we will see how true that statement is. And so to be accused of turning the world upside down is not an insult. It is actually a compliment. It means that those apostles and believers were fulfilling their mission. Many people had come to Christ. Many people had left their old ways. Their old sins, their old ways of doing religion. And that's where what ticked the Jews off. And they entered a lifestyle of relationship with Christ. Because following Jesus is not about a religion. It's about a relationship that you develop with a person, Jesus Christ. That flows out into fellowship and into worship and everything else. But it's primarily a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, not a religion. Not rituals and stuff like that. Hello? And that is what was a threat to the Jewish leaders. That was a threat to the priests of pagan temples. That was a threat to those merchants that made a living out of pagan idols and merchandises. <laughs> what does it mean to be a threat? That would turn the world upside down. A threat, of course, is someone or something that is considered dangerous. If you feel it's dangerous, it's a threat to you. And when they say turning the world upside down, it means to flip everything over. It means causing things to be totally different from the way they were. And so they felt a threat. They felt Christianity was dangerous because it was turning things around and changing it from the way things were. They were doing life as usual, you know, following their pagan idols or following the, the Jewish rituals in the synagogue. And here comes these Christians and they turn everything around and they change the way that things were being done by their beliefs and lifestyles. We would be considered dangerous. Any threat that would bring radical change. Anything that brings a radical change, your initial resp response is, it's a threat, it's dangerous. Because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You're not sure. We'd be people who turn the world upside down if we were perceived as a threat to those around us as well. And believe it or not, many still believe that we are a threat. In South Africa, we are relatively protected because most people in South Africa, at least by word of mouth, they say they believe in the God of the Bible. I, I don't believe it because if that was true, we wouldn't see the level of crime and, and corruption we see. So it's one thing to say it with your mouth, it's another thing to live. These people were... We're turning the world upside down, not only because they said they believe in Jesus, but their lifestyles was showing that they believed in Jesus. And that is what became a threat to everybody. And so, imagine if we were that kind of a threat. You know, we'd be a church that people either loved or hated. There'd be no in-between. You know why? Because that means we would be like Jesus. Jesus, well, he didn't have a gray area. People loved him or hated him. <laughs> 
all right? Because he, he was what he was. He, he expounded his gospel. He gave the invitation. He said, follow me. I am the only way. And that's it. Take it or leave it. Jesus was a threat. Jesus was a dangerous threat everywhere he went. When he went into the Samaritan ter- territory, he threatened their way of worship. He was considered dangerous by the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. He was brought before the Romans for insurrection, for terrorism, because he was proclaiming himself to be king. Meantime, everybody knows that Caesar is the big shot. Huh? But the apostles were also a threat, weren't they? After Pentecost and the filling of the Holy Spirit, they became dangerous. Thousands of people's lives were changed forever by their message and their savior. The Jewish leaders <laughs> warned them to quit. The apostles threatened the stability of the, that the Jewish uh, leaders had with the Roman leaders. They had a very finely balanced stability between Jews and, 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 and Rome. And these guys come and they disrupt everything. They shook Jerusalem to its foundations. Paul was a threat. He ran into Jesus on the way to Damascus and he became a dangerous man. He became like Jesus. Everywhere Paul went, he stirred up controversy and he divided people. Some believed and followed Paul. Others rejected the message and out of jealousy, they stirred up opposition. In fact, these guys in Thessalonica were so bent on disrupting the Christians that they traveled 60 kilometers to another city where Paul was, Berea, to start up a riot over there as well and cause confusion there. Hmm. The Jewish leaders tried to kill Paul. Because of what you are saying and doing. And as you went through different cities and, and city leaders ran him out of town and tried to kill him. Both Judaism and other religions were threatened by Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why did all these people feel threatened? What threatened people back then is still what threatens people today. People feel threatened by something that is a radical departure from normal. Everything that's a radical departure from normal. What Jesus, the apostles, and Paul were preaching was radically different to normal. Listen, today we've got 2,000 years of Christianity behind us. And to us in Christianized countries, Christianity is nothing new. We, we know it. Okay? And some people have a lot to say about it, and there's been different experiences and so on. So it's not new to us in that way. But in the first century, it was a brand new idea. It didn't exist. We had God's people, the Jews, with all their Judaism and all their laws and, and the history they had of, of God having intervened in them. But remember, by the time that Jesus came to earth, for 400 years, there had been silence, prophetic silence. God had not done anything in or through his people because of their disobedience. And then suddenly, this Jesus appears, saying that he is now the son of God. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. Huh? And, and so Judaism felt threatened. All these other religions, pagan religions, felt threatened as well. Because he came to destabilize what was normal. Rocking the status quo. You know, the same old, we, we like the same old, same old, our good old routines. And now here comes someone saying something different. J- change is dangerous. Change forces people to think differently. Change says that what's happening now may not be all there is. There may be more. 
And now, the Christians, they were not trying to harm people. They were trying to see people saved. Their threat was not bad. <laughs> it was good. The reaction of the people who felt threatened, their reaction was bad. It wasn't the Christians causing riot. It was the jealous non-followers of Jesus causing riots. The gospel never incites us to riot, to destruction, to this kind of stuff. Amen? That was never Jesus' way. <laughs> so, if we're going to be a threat to turn the world upside down for Jesus, we have to embody the trait of those we've mentioned. Jesus, the apostles, Paul. How can we be a threat without being a menace? How can we be dangerous people without being malicious? Well, we have to turn to Jesus. How did he do it? So let's look at Jesus very quickly. Number one, Jesus cared about people. Jesus cared about people. Huh? No matter what you read and what you read about the life of Christ, everywhere he goes, he cared about people. He cared about the, the remote people of society, those that nobody could look at. He cared about those people. He treated the nobodies as somebodies. He's still doing it today. <laughs> He cared about people that nobody else cared about. He cared about the sick, the marginalized, those on the edges of society. The key word here is care. He cared. If you want to turn the world upside down, care about people. Whether you're in school, at work, whether you are in a gym, whether you're just walking around, be aware of your surroundings and care about people. Love people nobody else wants to love. Share the love of Jesus with people nobody else wants to touch. Number two, Jesus challenged religion. He challenged religion. He challenged the religious establishment. He flipped religion on its head. He pointed out what religion really is. All right? He exposed religion as a set of rules and regulations made by a few people. Then they force it onto everybody to do it. Listen to what he said, for example, in Luke chapter 11, verse 46. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus said, And you experts in the law. He's talking now to the religious leaders, to the priests, the Pharisees, the leaders of the temple and of the synagogue. He says, You experts in the law. Woe to you. Sis, man. Okay. Woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not even lift a finger to help them. You see what's happening? Those dudes were putting laws upon laws. Now listen, they were making the laws, not God. It, was, it wasn't scripture. It was these guys interpreting, creating. And because they were the religious leaders, they would just tell the people. And the poor people were so conditioned, they would just have to do it. Burdens. And Jesus exposed that. Jesus exposed that. The key word here is challenge. If you are going to be turning our world upside down, we may have to do the same sometimes. And I, I'm not talking about, you know, going after other churches. No. There are many, many churches doing a great job, doing all they can for Jesus. I, I'm talking about challenging what people think and believe church is. Because, you see, after 2,000 years, we've become used to Christianity. And we treat Christianity just like any other religion. There's a set of rules we have to do. There's a pastor, dormant priest, and we've got to go, yes, sir, no, sir, do what you do, sir. And we don't even stop to question if the things we are doing are from God or from men. Challenge. 
We have to challenge people. We have to challenge ourselves sometimes, isn't it? Challenge what people think following Jesus is all about. Challenge the social club image. Some people attend church like a social club. They stick to a particular denomination or a particular brand because it looks good to be there. And every Sunday you dress up and you go there and you're seen over there and it's good for you to be seen there. There was a particular time period in South Africa that if you belonged to a certain particular denomination and you were seen there on Sunday mornings with your white tie, it was very profitable for you in your work, in your business, in your social life. And people who never believed in Jesus were sitting on those pews on Sunday morning. It's their social club. Their ticket to being accepted in certain circles. Come on, guys. Let's challenge that. Church, Christianity is not a social club. Challenge the, we are better than you mentality. You've seen it happens today. Church so-and-so says, come to my church because we've got the secret. Hallelujah. We've got the power. We are not like those guys. We are better than them. Listen, none of us are better than each other. We all need a savior, man. Churches preach the gospel. We are not competing with each other. We are joining hands. We've got different styles of churches for different styles of people. And as I often say, you know, if you guys, maybe you're not from Pretoria, but if you're in Pretoria and you go to hell, it's your fault. Because in Pretoria, there's so many different kinds of churches. Big ones, small ones, loud ones, quiet ones. Man, you're going to find a church that suits who you are. You've got no excuse. So we're not competing with each other. It's not better one, worse one. We are all doing the same thing in different styles. So challenge the, we are better than you mentality. Challenge the, keeping the rules makes you okay. You seen that? Oh man, I give my ties, I dress up nicely, I go to church every Sunday. Da, da, da. I'm keeping all the rules. It's the, the check. You know, when he did Colossians, instead of Colossians, you may remember, God just blows that away. It's got nothing to do with how many rules you keep. It's his mercy and his love. That's it. Amen. I am saved by his mercy and his love. Oh, yes, of course, because I love him, there are some things I'm going to do. But I don't do it to earn points, to earn salvation. No, I do it out of love. I do it out of, you know, my desire to be part of his team and to please him. Amen? Challenge. The, the secret club picture so many have of church. Some of the people outside the church, they think the church is this mysterious little secret club thing. No. Now, when I say challenge, I don't mean that you should go about in a defiant way, inquiring what people believe and then trying to sort them out. No, 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 no. Before a person can believe in the gospel, they must first understand the content of the gospel. And so, as you talk with them, find out where the person is. And then take a conversation. I think our influence, our desire must be to talk to people and remove obstacles one at a time. Because if people are not following Jesus yet, it's because there are obstacles. They've had experiences. They've heard things. They've experienced things which somehow have put a blockage on between them and Jesus or between them and the church. And unfortunately, in 2,000 years, the church has made plenty of mistakes. We are still, as a church, made up of individual people and each one of us is still a sinner saved by grace. We are still imperfect. And although we serve the perfect God, we still make mistakes. And sometimes you can say and do things which offend somebody. And it kind of pushes them away. Now we understand that as Christians and we kind of work around that. But an unbeliever will see these things and, oh, I don't want to go there. And so as we talk to them, 
And as we talk to people, we must help remove those obstacles. Amen? That's why I say we don't go in a defiant way, but we go humbly trying to have a conversation. So show people that Jesus is accepting of all people who will turn to him by faith. Just like he accepted you by faith, he will accept them as well. Amen? And then number three, Jesus was committed to his mission. Man, I tell you what, if we're going to have to do this as well and become people that influence others and change our world, we have to show some commitment. Jesus was completely sold out to see people's lives changed. Jesus himself said in in Luke 19.10, he said, for the Son of Man, that's talking about himself, he came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. And now he invites us, and through our normal daily lives, we get to join Jesus in his mission. Not every one of us is going to be preachers. You don't have to be a preacher to be a world changer. Remember, that first century church, when the people got accused, they were not just accusing Paul and Silas, they were accusing the church, the Christians. Paul and Silas, they'd pop in, preach a message, and move on. The people that stayed behind, the ordinary people that were working there, living there, they were the ones turning the world upside down because of their lifestyle. (laughs) And if you go to the book of Thessalonians, you kind of get to hear that. And for Jesus, there was nothing, not even death, would separate him from his mission. He came to set the captives free, to seek and save the lost. The key word here is commit. And Jesus had the habit of turning off uncommitted people. What must I do to be saved? Oh, go and sell who you've got and come and follow me. Hey, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> he wants us to be committed to the cause. Amen? Paul, Silas, Timothy, the whole team, they had this kind of commitment. Do you have this kind of commitment to see people change, see your world changed? You don't have to be a traveling preacher like Paul to do these things. Amen? It was ordinary people back then living and doing life in those cities but living out the teachings of Jesus that turn the world upside down, or actually right side up. Amen? <laughs> Sometime after Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, he wrote them a letter. Listen to how he talks about them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. You see, their faith in Jesus caused them to behave in such a way. They worked over there. Your labor prompted by love. They were people of love. They learned to love. And your endurance, you see, they were persistent. They were committed, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of who they were and what they were doing, that is what was changing the the city. Number seven, and so, verse seven, uh, uh, sorry, verse, sorry, I'm going to go now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. How? You see? They started following the gospel. When you follow the gospel of Jesus, you become like him. Now, Paul came, presented them the gospel. They watched Paul, and they began to follow Paul. And then as they they grew in the knowledge of the word of God, they followed the word, and they became more and more like Jesus. They were imitators of us, of the preachers, and of the Lord. For you welcome the message, the gospel, in the midst of severe suffering. They were being persecuted. 
They were being accused by the authorities. But in the middle of all that, they accepted, they welcomed the message with a joy given by the Holy Spirit. Listen, there's one thing about Christianity and about the gospel. You accept it, and you might face problems and troubles, but there's something inside that is a joy that cannot, they cannot take it from you. There is something about knowing that you're following Jesus, knowing that you're doing the right thing, knowing that you've got peace with God. Because that is the peace that Jesus was talking about. Not the peace in the world around you. Peace between you and God. Peace on the inside. Peace that even though the world around you is falling apart, inside you are healthy. You've got peace. You've got hope. You know that this is going to turn out okay because your God is still on the throne. Hallelujah. And that's what happened to those Christians in Thessalonica. They actually became an example to the other churches Verse 7, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, all the, the region there in the north of Greece and, and, and the middle of Greece, that whole area. They became a model to the Christians in those places. <laughs> and as you, as you read a bit more of that chapter, you see he, co- he continues praising them for their work because of them embracing the gospel. You see, they became more and more like Paul and like Jesus. And as we continue this series, we will learn more about what made the early church turn the world upside down. Today we saw that Jesus turned the world upside down by caring about people, having a clear message that challenged the religious status quo and being totally committed to his mission. Paul and the other apostles followed in the footsteps of Jesus and turned their world upside down. Believers everywhere Follow Jesus through the teachings of Paul and the apostles, and they turn their world upside down. Now is our turn. We are here now. God has placed you at this, in this place, in this city, at this time. You are here in 2022, not by accident. But God has placed you in this time in history to make a difference to your world, to those around you, by embracing the gospel and living out the gospel right there where you do life, in front of the people that are surrounding you. Many of them trying to do things the way the world does. Many of them trying to be fashionable, trying to be accepted by society, by the trends of today, the social trends, the social media trends, whatever it is. People want to belong and they wanna, they'll do it. Even if they don't agree, they'll do things just to fit in. Where are we going to fit in? Are we going to choose to fit into the world? Are we going to choose to fit into Jesus and to be a follower of him? Because the minute you do that, you start turning the world upside down. You start becoming a problem to people around you. You don't speak their language anymore. You don't talk like they do. (laughs) You don't do the things that they do. You don't join in the kind of parties that they want to have. You don't enjoy, you don't enjoy, join in the kind of substance they want to offer you. Your values are different. You look at people differently. You love people which they don't want to love. (laughs) You know, it's our turn to become dangerous. It's our turn to become a threat. And I hope that as we continue the series and as you ponder about these things, as you go into your week, you'll become aware that in some areas of your life, you are a threat 
to those who do not follow Jesus. What must we do? Love them. Not judge them. Not point fingers at them. No. Yes, it's okay to challenge them in a loving way. Share your story. Think about it. What has the gospel done for you? What were you like before you committed to follow Jesus? And how did you come to follow Jesus? And what has it done to your life? Think about that because as we go into the world, as we talk to people, our story has much to tell. Very often when Paul preached, he would tell his story and what he, how he experienced Jesus. And we all have different stories. Like I said, some people have been in real dark places and Jesus took them out. Others have been spared those dark places, but that is a story too. And what has happened since we committed our lives to Jesus? Think about it. Because it's our stories, together with the gospel, that's going to change people's lives. See, the gospel changed us. And Paul is very clear that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation of all who would believe. I have believed and I've seen my world changed and as much as I can, I want to be an instrument in changing something in the world around me. Will you join me? Will you join us? Shall we as a church become more aware of this and become aware of who we are and the fact that we can turn the world upside down, right side up, whatever way you want to say it. Amen? We'll see you next Sunday for part two. Let's stand up and let's pray. And I hope you'll go home and think about these things and become aware of who you are as you do life this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. And we realize it is a challenge that you're receiving today, Lord. <laughs> just like you challenged people back in your day, Lord, today you are challenging us, even as your children. And simply, Lord, because you want us to grow. As we heard last week, Lord God, to faith, we should add a whole bunch of things. Today we had a little bit of knowledge of what happened in that first century, Lord God, and how we can join your work today. I pray a blessing, Father, upon your people, those are here, those watching, those listening to this message. Father, enable us to become world changers. Yes, Lord, I know none of us as individuals can change the whole world, but each one of us as an individual can touch somebody's world, Father, and help that person or that family turn their world right side up. Father, I pray you use us, Lord God, younger and older. Everyone, Father, no matter where we are, no matter what part of the nation or of the world we are, Father, use us, Lord. Use your people to continue this wonderful work of change until you come back and establish the fullness of change. We pray this in Jesus' name, Lord. So now, may the love of God the Father the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon each one of us as we go forth and turn our worlds upside down for his glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
God bless you. Have a great Sunday. A blessed week. And see you next week, eh? For part two. See you then. Bye-bye.